Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com It was in the dead of night, last Tuesday, a group of men, women and children were clinging to a flimsy inflatable boat, surrounded by the freezing channel. Their hopes and dreams for the future in tatters around them. Both the engines stopped working or they'd run out of fuel and they'd also sprung a leak. From the accounts of the two survivors, eventually the boat was completely sunk and people were in the water clinging on to whatever they could, the remains of the boat, life jackets, their possessions and so on. And they were in the water for several hours. The water was freezing, it was dark, and eventually after several hours of this, some people just couldn't hang on any longer. Even as they were drowning, the people on the boat had become embroiled in a game of political tag between Britain and France. One of the survivors said they had first called the French authorities who told them they couldn't do anything because they're now in British waters. They then called the British authorities, who they claimed ignored them, which is a a claim that has been rebuffed by the UK government. If it's true, then I think a certain amount of culpability does rest with agencies who did nothing to act. At 2pm last Wednesday... A fisherman alerted the authorities after seeing bodies floating in the channel. We now know 27 people died on that boat. As the world reacted with shock and dismay, in London and Paris, a blame game was already underway. After a year of record numbers crossing the channel, people on all sides of the argument had warned this was a tragedy waiting to happen. This is becoming very political, very quickly. In the meantime, thousands of lives remain at risk as channel crossings show no sign of abating. How old are your sons? My son is, that one is a 15, the other one is a 13. 15, 13, okay, okay. 
Gosh, I hope they're going to be able to get you warmed up soon. It must, be, it must have been very cold on the boat. What is it actually like for the people on the shores of the Channel trying to find their way to safety? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, deaths in the Channel. The view from both coasts. My name's Tom Ball, and I'm a news reporter at The Times. Just a few days before last week's tragedy, Tom had been on assignment in one of the camps in France. It's just outside Dunkirk, a place called Consent. When I arrived just under two weeks ago now, there had just been a big police eviction, which had essentially just raised the camp to the ground, quite literally. And, and when we turned up, there were burnt tents, sleeping bags shreds of people's possessions lying around in the dirt. So all the people that had been thrown out of that camp then just migrated literally about 100 yards to the next field. The same thing has now happened to the camp Tom visited. The police evicted the site, moving everyone on. It had been raining a lot. So people are living in very muddy, squalid conditions. They're burning fire from the wood that they could chop down. A lot of them are also running out of food and water. It sounds desperate, and I suppose at this time of year it must have been very cold. Cold, but also some people were just completely drenched. So, yeah, horrible conditions to be living in. Tom, amongst the people we know died at sea that night were a, a family that you met. Tell me a bit about Kazal Armud. I should say that, that they haven't been confirmed dead, but reports started coming out on Sunday, a few days after the calamity. Kajal Ahmed, she is a woman from the Kurdish region of Iraq. She and her three children had been there for about a month when we met them. Kajal had worked in a hospital, her husband's police officer, but he wasn't travelling with them, uh, and the plan had been that he would then join them later. Her three children, Hadir, 22, had trained as an artist and, and told me that she wanted to be an art teacher when she reached the UK. Mubin, her son, who was 16, wanted to be a barber. And then there was Hasti, who was a little girl of, of seven. You know, it's not necessarily always the case that someone who is living in the most dire of circumstances is, you know, willing to go and speak to a, a nosy British journalist, but they were very welcoming, lovely, and, and offered us some tea to drink. And Kajal was telling me about the fact that, that life had been very difficult in Iraq, and they had relatives in Birmingham who they were hoping to join. Mubin was a kind of, you know, cheeky 16-year-old, and was delighting in my, my terrible accent when trying to speak some of the Kurdish words that he was teaching me. Adia was, was, was also lovely and she'd been drawing to pass the time. Very good artist. And Hasti was playing around. She had this little set of toy binoculars which she was using to spy on everyone else in the camp. They were living in horrible conditions and yet they were dignified and warm. And, you know, the sort of welcome they gave me was not unlike a welcome that you'd give someone if you were welcoming to your home. Mm. So I felt very thankful and, and privileged to spent a bit of time with them. And did they know the sort of risks that they'd be faced with in order to get here? Yes, they did. And I asked Kajal if she was worried about making the crossing. She said, yeah, of course I am. This is something that I think about all the time. But when I was there with them, they were 
They've been there for about a month, but they were waiting for literally any day, really, for the call to come from the smuggler telling them that they could go across. And it would have been four or five days after I was with them that, that they would have got that call. I mean, I think I think they're just you know looking for a, a better life, one where they would have more opportunities, more freedoms, and more comfort than they did back in Iraq. And how did you hear about what had happened? When did you realise it was them? They were pretty quickly named as potential victims. There had been reports that a WhatsApp group that they were on, which was organised by a smuggler, and which had several other people on, was the same group that had been on that particular boat. So it seems very likely that they were on that boat. And their father, uh, Kajal's husband, spoke to the Observer and said that he hadn't heard from them since 10pm that night when they set out. And so it, it has been assumed that they were among the 27 that died that night. In the aftermath of the tragedy came the questions. Who was to blame for the 27 deaths? Was it the border force agencies who failed to save them? Or the policymakers who failed to deal with the crisis? And what about the people smugglers? In fact, the reason that I was out there was to write a story about smugglers and the increasing professionalisation of the smuggling industry, I suppose you'd call it, from what was originally just a kind of makeshift operation that was run predominantly by migrants themselves to now what is an operation that's run by serious organised criminal gangs. I mean, we spoke to several people who told us that the smugglers were messing out violence in order to maintain their control over the industry. And one Kurdish man that I spoke to said, I was asking him about a guy that had been following us around the camps who, who looked much more smartly dressed than, well, I mean, you know, he's in clean clothes. Uh, and he'd sort of been trying to ward us off from speaking to people. And I asked uh, someone who this guy was and the, the migrant told me that he was a smuggler. When I asked him if he could give us any more details or information about him, he said, I can't, otherwise he'll, he'll shoot me in the head. And that fear still stalks the two survivors from last Wednesday, who are now out of hospital. We've been trying to get in contact with both of them, which has been proving quite difficult. I think it's probably down to the fact that they are very worried for their safety because they were interviewed by police in the hospital. One of the survivors said he was very concerned about his safety as he believed the smugglers would, would try and kill him if they found him because they, they believed that he would have passed on information about them to the police. Wow. So not only the horror of having just survived something as traumatic as spending 10 hours in, in the sea, but they're now worried about the smugglers. Yeah, exactly. The threat of violence is very real. So that's what it's like on the French side of the channel. But what about on the opposite coast? On the same day that 27 people died trying to cross the channel, one of our reporters was on the Kent coast, watching the shaky boats as they came in. That's coming up in just a moment. But first... I'm Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. 
visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. The boat carrying those 27 people who died last week never reached British shores. But as the sun rose that morning, and before the horrific news had broken, the Times reporter Emma Yeomans was on the beach at Dungeness as the many boats which did complete their journey that night began to arrive. They're not scenes I'd ever imagined seeing in Kent in the UK. Hundreds of people sitting in sub-10 degree weather in soaking wet clothes with journalists being asked to bring them water because there's no resources for them. I came away quite shaken by that. With little phone signal to be had on the peninsula, Emma had no idea about the tragedy unfolding in the channel. Over several hours, she watched as nine boats carrying hundreds of people completed the perilous journey. For many, it had taken months or even years to arrive here on this little beach on the Kent coast. Dungeness is essentially just a heap of shingle that has slowly extended out into the sea. There's a lighthouse on it and a very large nuclear power station and a lot of strange old fishermen's cottages. It's exceptionally flat and windy. When people arrive, they're coming straight onto a beach in this very open, very cold area. Tell me what happened when you got there. At about eight o'clock, we heard that the first boats were being picked up at sea. We saw the lifeboat coming in and we could see from quite a way off that it was very busy. This was the first boat of the day of nine. It had been so recently and poorly made that when rescuers tried to grab the handle on the front of the boat just to tow it, the handle just fell off. They kind of look like the sort of beams you get on a bouncy castle, you know, that level of flimsiness. Two of those with a sheet of plastic between One rescuer looked at one boat and said the smugglers would normally line it with wood to give the people inside a bit of stability, and they just hadn't bothered. The only thing separating people from the sea was this single sheet of thin plastic. Those boats sound flimsy. How many people would you have on any one of them? The first one we knew had exactly 34. One later in the day we think had more than 50. That sounds terrifying. It's lunchtime on the shingle at Dungeness in Kent and the fourth and fifth boats are now being escorted in by the RNLI. Out at sea, we can see not that far from shore, a dinghy was being escorted to shore by a rescue boat. It seemed to have run out of fuel, that people are calling out for help. The lifeboat is brought nearly to shore and then rescuers go out to bring it up over the sand and up the shingle. And people just started pouring off it, including very, very young children being carried by their parents. I spoke to one woman who, who worked specifically with the children who said it was it was one of the highest numbers of children off boats she'd seen. And it was just very frightening to see the state they were in. I can imagine. 
they were brought up the shingle in this very cold wind. Mm. At this point, it was maybe six degrees outside and processed and wet clothes outside the boat shed. When I say process, in a place like that, it's not a particularly sophisticated process. It's as simple as a border force officer giving people a pat down, putting all their belongings into a plastic bag. And in the case of families, they are given coloured wristbands to make sure they stay together. And then they are wrapped in blankets in the case of the children to try and keep them warm. They try and hand out as many blankets as they could because people were freezing cold, packed onto a coach and then driven off inland to a, to a larger centre. The estimate was that 600 people arrived in the probably 8 to 12 hours I was there. When you were in Dungeness and you were seeing these flimsy boats coming in, was the RNLI around? How, how were they? Oh, absolutely. They were meeting people out at sea in most cases. I spoke to a number of responders. One said it was the worst he'd ever seen it. This was a standard routine for them some days to go out and get boat after boat in. People who'd been on the boats described to us calling for help by mobile phone while they were out at sea when they were in trouble. And the RNLI were going out back and forth from Dungeness to pick boats up and bring them to shore. We also saw a couple of border force boats in the area, but they weren't bringing people into Dungeness. They were towing empty dinghies when people had been transferred onto the boats. And tell me about some of the people you met who had managed to make the crossing, who'd arrived from Calais. I spoke to quite a lot of the people who had made the crossing that day and who had arrived on those beaches. Where have you come from, sir? I come from Afghanistan. Okay. How long was your journey? Three months ago. I spoke to a father. My name is Khan. His name was Khan. How old are you, Khan? Forty. Forty. And his brother, Sanobar, had been an officer in the Afghan army. My brother is a special force uh, army. Okay. We have all documents with me. Yeah, yeah. I, if you want, I can assure you. That would be wonderful. Thank you. So your brother, this is your brother Yes, here? my brother. This is my son. Hi. <laughs> Hi. How old are your sons? My son is, that one is a 15, other one is a 13. 15, 13. So they'd left Afghanistan about three months before they arrived, and these teenage boys were standing there in soaking wet jeans, shivering. Gosh, I hope they're going to be able to get you warmed up soon. It must, be, it must have been very cold on the boat. Yeah, it's too much. He said they'd had to leave, really, because the Taliban had made their life in Afghanistan impossible. You know, that your brother was in, was worked with the British Special Forces? British, yeah. He's worked with the British. British. He worked with the American. He's, we have all documents with us. He showed me his documents, you know, showing the participation in joint training exercises and courses with the US Army. So they'd felt they had to leave. If he has these documents, did he apply for the official scheme to come over? Yes, he did. He'd been waiting so long, though, under the Taliban, that he'd given up and, and left of his own accord. And so the Taliban will target yeah, all yeah. the time. This way come with small children. Mm, of course, of course. What do you hope to do now you're in the UK? I don't know. I don't know. What can I do? And people often ask, you know, why don't people stay in France when they get to safety? For him, if he'd worked for for British forces, I mean, I suppose that that makes perfect sense that you'd want to get to the country who you'd worked for and helped to support. It does, especially speaking such good English. You know, why would someone who has worked for British forces, or at least with British forces, served and trained alongside our troops, not want to come and live here? 
I could very much see how it would make no sense in his mind to try and find a country where he knew no one, had no connections and spoke none of the language. He hadn't wanted to leave. He'd been clear about that. He said he'd had a very good life in Afghanistan prior to the Taliban coming. We have a house, we have everything, but the problem is Taliban. Was he hopeful that now that he'd arrived on British soil, he'd be allowed to stay? Yes, but like a lot of people I met, he didn't really know what would happen next. Rather than asking the questions, I often found myself being asked by people I was speaking to, what happens to us, where will they take us? Even though people had a good sense of of why they wanted to come to Britain or how to get here or maybe what the rules surrounding their crossing might be, they very rarely really knew what was waiting for them on shore. And tell me about some of the other people you met. What's your name? Is that A-H-M-A-D or E-D? Yes. Ahmed came from Palestine. He told me he'd, he'd worked as a translator, an English language translator, mostly for NGOs, but then been refused re-entry to Palestine. He'd been left effectively homeless. And again, speaking f- fluent English, England seemed like the next logical destination for him. So he'd been travelling across Europe for quite a long time. Italy, French, then I think his journey had been in the years rather than months. Wow. And he described in quite vivid detail the encounters with the smugglers in France. How hard is it to get a boat? Like, how do you find a boat in Calais? There's some people, uh, they say, if you want to go to UK, you have to pay for, for me and I will make you to go to you. Mostly he had been staying up near Calais in Dunkirk, but as the patrols grow more heavy there, the smugglers had been moving people down the coast. So he said the day before he made the crossing that with a group of others under the direction of smugglers, they'd travelled down from Calais to Boulogne. Mm. They'd spent a night in the forest there, and then at about 2am, they'd been told to get up, go to the beach... They'd set off at about 2am and they arrived in Dungeness as late as 2.30. And there had been virtually no food or water for the entire 12-hour crossing. I mean, it sounds extraordinarily difficult. What was it like for the children on the boats? It must have been difficult for people that young. All the time they crying, they screaming, they feel hungry. And he said there was one boy who he thought had probably never seen the sea before. So it was just scooping up water to try and drink it from the sea and, of course, finding it was salty. I mean, it sounds like such a risky, such a dangerous and difficult journey. For Ahmed, what compelled him to come to the UK and and not stay in France? I think his experiences in France had been very, very poor. Like a lot of the people I spoke to, he didn't want to talk much about France. But from the hints he gave and from the hints that others gave, I believe their camps had been broken up numerous times and they just didn't feel that there was any safe interaction with authorities in France. And what was he hoping would happen now? He hoped to be able to find work translating again, and he was hoping to receive asylum as a, as a Palestinian asylum seeker. That was a common theme. A lot of the people I spoke to described what we would think of as actually fairly strong claims for asylum, you know, like coming from Afghanistan or like another man I spoke to, Riyadh, who travelled nine months from Syria. And some of them described these dreams of wanting to work or wanting to study as well. So they had really hopeful expectations for their life in the UK. Do you know what's happened to them now? Where do they go and what's the process like from now? 
I'm hoping to hear from some people. In broader terms, I believe what will happen now is that they will be sent mostly to... We see a lot of hotels being used at the moment. So there are a few reception centres for, for recently arrived asylum seekers and refugees. But those have become very full in recent months. So the Home Office is also using hotels. And people will be kept in these hotels while their claims are put in motion. At some point, as we see with some of the people who came from Afghanistan through the Arab scheme earlier, they will be moved into community housing once that's available. But for some people, it's a very long wait. And then after that, many will get initially six-month residence. Again, that's what we've seen with the people who came from Afghanistan this summer. And for those whose asylum claims are accepted, permanent residency. And given that this is becoming a regular occurrence now, what impact has it had on the people of, of Kent? You know, there were, seemed to be two entirely different camps. There were some local people who were very immediately concerned. We did see a couple of women coming up as quickly as they could just to buy chips from the pub because people were so hungry. But we also saw some really unpleasant reactions. There was a group of men in a car who drove back and forward repeatedly shouting, send them home at this group. And we heard that as well, that refrain from people in some of the local businesses or in public places around there, just why are they here? Why us? But I think it's important to stress that really these refugees and and asylum seekers are in these communities for an hour or two at most when they first arrive before they go off for processing. And how did the refugees react when these men were driving past shouting, send them home? To be quite frank, I think after 12 hours at sea, they had far, far bigger and more pressing concerns. As Emma was meeting boats on the beach in Kent and Tom Ball was following the breaking news of the 27 deaths, not knowing the family he'd met just days earlier would soon be identified among the likely victims. The Times Home Affairs editor, Matt Dathan, was watching the coverage from Calais. In the camps, people who were waiting for boats of their own were reacting as they heard what had happened overnight. It was quite horrifying to watch, actually, on the TV screens when we saw people, other migrants, break down. These people, they'd only just met at the camp, but Mm. they shared something very much in common. A lot of them are fleeing Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Syria. They've made the long journey across Europe and then their final journey to the UK, which many see as one of the easiest parts of the journey in their eyes. They sadly drowned and then died in in an awful way. Yet these people, despite seeing those scenes, uh, are still hoping and, and planning to make the journey themselves. I asked Matt how the UK and French governments have responded in the past week. But before we get on to that, let's just break down some of the numbers. Priti Patel entered the Home Office in July 2019, promising to make migrant crossings an infrequent phenomenon, she said. When spring arrived, so spring 2020, she upped the ante and, and pledged to make uh, this route unviable uh, across the Channel. However, far from becoming unviable, of course, Channel crossings are now the means of entry into the UK for asylum seekers. And Channel crossings have risen about tenfold from the year she became Home Secretary in 2019. And that's why we're hearing so much about the rising numbers in the news at the moment. In 2019, we saw around 1,800 uh, people come across the Channel in small boats. 
that rose to 8,420 in 2020. And then this year already, we've seen more than 26,000. Those figures are alarming. But here's a bit of context. They only look at the number of people crossing the channel by boat, which has increased rapidly. But if you look at the total number of people claiming asylum in the UK, that's actually been falling over the same period. But the boats are dangerous. So why are so many more people taking the risk? Well, one of the reasons is the pandemic. As Europe went into lockdown in 2020, many of the safer routes to the UK were shutting down too. Flights were grounded, lorries stopped transporting goods, and people trying to get to the UK turned to the only remaining option, a crowded dinghy in middle of the night and a 20-mile stretch of the cold, dark sea. And Matt, given the horror of what happened and the tragedy of so many people dying in one go, how on earth has the relationship between France and the UK somehow deteriorated as a result of it, rather than everybody coming together to try to fix this problem? Well, France and the UK have for years had to tackle this problem, but it's much easier controlling a a road and a rail border uh, between two countries separated by a sea and much harder to control a coastline and about 150 kilometres of northern French coastline is exploited by people smugglers trying to uh, ferry migrants across in small boats. What happened yesterday was a dreadful shock. It was not a surprise, but it is also a reminder of how vulnerable people are um, put at peril when in the hands of criminal gangs. Over the past year, the UK and France have been collaborating in an attempt to cut down the number of migrant boats making it across the Channel. They've ploughed in millions of pounds and increased patrols, but still the numbers keep rising. And with them, so do tensions. We're told relations between the UK and France are worse now than at any time since Waterloo. And it's becoming personal. President Macron is reported to have described Boris Johnson as a clown, with the attitude of a knucklehead. And then we've just had these regular clashes between Priti Patel, Darmanin, Emmanuel Macron, Boris Johnson, regularly, pretty much every week over the issue since the summer. So that's the context. And and on Friday, uh, two days after the tragedy in the Channel, we saw those tensions explode yet again. Boris Johnson sent a letter to Emmanuel Macron setting out Britain's six key requests for trying to combat these crossings. And Boris Johnson published this letter on Twitter before actually sending it. And Emmanuel Macron accused Boris Johnson of not taking this issue seriously. He said, you know, proper leaders do not communicate on Twitter. And they basically see Boris Johnson and Priti Patel as basically just posturing to a British audience and showing the voters and the public that they are trying to take action, trying to find solutions. But the French basically are saying, look, these are solutions that are not new. You've repeatedly asked for these um, solutions and we've repeatedly said no. And what about French public opinion? I mean, this seems to be becoming an election issue for them. There are presidential elections in April and Macron is facing a real threat from the French right. And so if he signed up to an agreement that basically would take responsibility for thousands more asylum seekers who don't even want to be in France, then I think that would go down very badly. And what about public opinion here? 
the image of thousands of people crossing into Britain without authorization really doesn't give the idea that we've got control of our borders. And we saw just how powerful this issue is in the Brexit referendum. And while immigration over the last few years since Brexit has sort of dampened down as a major issue, we're very much seeing immigration rise up the sort of agenda again. The channel migration crisis is increasingly angering and, and frustrating voters and saying if, if, if the government does not sort this out, then they will look elsewhere. I mean, do you think Downing Street is starting to worry that this could, you know, this could cost them at the next election? Oh, I don't think they're starting to worry. They've, they've been worried throughout the year. We wrote in the summer how Boris Johnson was, was becoming increasingly frustrated at the Home Office's and Priti Patel's lack of progress on this issue. Tom, you know, sort of having done that reporting, having seen it up close, you know, are there any reflections you want to share? What would you want people to know? I suppose a big crisis like this, which is on the front of newspapers and which is talked about in sort of grandiose terms and is, is sort of labelled migrant crisis, I think can sort of alienate you from the circumstances and the people who are living it. When you go to these camps, you know, you're very quickly made aware of multifaceted reasons and decisions and lives that are being lived by these people. All of these people are doing what they're doing for different reasons. All of them are individuals and when you meet them, whatever you think about the politics of it, you know, you, you can't sort of help but, but sympathise with them. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times reporters Tom Ball and Emma Yeomans, and the Home Affairs editor at The Times, Matt Dathan. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Arlie Adlington and James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.